you can go ahead and have a seat. If you were a child of the 90s, you might remember those commercials with the male model Fabio for the product, I can't believe it's not butter. Uh, that phrase and those ads were very inescapable. The product is still around, but I don't know that the ads are still as popular. A version of that slogan has been running through my mind all week as I have reflected on our gospel reading this morning. If I were to tag this sermon, it wouldn't be butter, of course, but I can't believe it's not bread. Our passage today from John 6 describes how the crowd who had just recently been fed by Jesus at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 earlier in the chapter came looking for more, looking for bread. And Jesus' response is, it's not that bread I'm giving to you. Except where the problem with the product, I can't believe it's not butter, is for so many it is less than what it is replacing, not as good as the real thing as butter. What Jesus is offering here is so much more, so much better than the crowd can ask or imagine. This morning, it's my conviction that the living God, through the text of the Gospel of John, wants to expand, in a way, our imaginations in terms of who Jesus is and all that his God has done and is doing in our lives. To that end, I want to explore our reading, John 6, verses 25 to 40, and group our thinking around two headings. First, seeing the signs, and then second, eating right. So first, seeing the signs, and then second, eating right. Before we jump in, let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit, the gift of your word. We thank you that your spirit inspired John to recall, record these words for us, for your church. And we ask that that same spirit would now enliven our hearts and our minds to lay hold of the truth of who you are, that these words point to and empower us to live into the reality that they describe. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So first, seeing the signs. Whether it's climbing a mountain or engaging someone you don't know in a social setting, beyond the simple fact of your approach, the trajectory, how you make your approach, matters a great deal. And in John 6 here, the approach of the crowd is all wrong. They come to Jesus, that's good, but they come thinking about him and his actions in a purely limited way. The physical, the material, they come thinking with their stomachs. That informs their approach. This is Jesus' point in verse 26. You're seeking me out not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And in part, who could blame them? If you found a vending machine in the desert that dispensed an abundance of fine bread and unlimited fish, wouldn't you want to hold on to that thing to come back for more? But behind that desire to find, to hold on to the gift of physical bread is this important misunderstanding, a misunderstanding that is repeated often in the Gospel of John, and if we're honest, repeated often in our own lives. That is, the crowd has this singular focus on those things that they can taste, touch, and see. And this is what they assume Jesus is here for. 
It's not that such a focus is bad or wrong, displeasing to God. It's that it is incomplete. And it causes the crowd, it causes us so often to miss the fullness of who Jesus is. I, I referred to this story a few years ago, but it's, it so illustrates the point, I couldn't help but do it again. But St. Augustine tells the story of this remarkable and tragic wedding proposal. In some beautiful locale, when conditions were perfect, just right, the man, as would have been custom, puts forward the question of marriage and offers this exquisite ring as a token of his affection. And in bizarre fashion, Augustine describes the would-be fiancé is overcome with emotion, grabs the ring, and runs off extolling its magnificence and splendor so taken with the beauty of the ring. Augustine suggests a person has wholly missed the point. It is a tragic misunderstanding because signs are meant to point away from themselves to something hidden, deeper, greater. The engagement ring, for all its beauty and expense, points to something of much greater value, the love of the lover. And to be fixated on the ring itself is to miss this much greater reality, do not set your hearts upon the bread, but consider what the bread points to. The language of signs actually appears throughout the Gospel of John. It's there in our reading this morning. Many of Jesus' most miraculous works in the Gospel are characterized as signs. And this is a distinct element of John's story that separates his work from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. It's how Jesus' miraculous deeds are intended to inspire faith, to be signs leading to greater faith. Often in the other Gospels, if you've read them, you'll know that faith precedes the miracles. Think of the woman who touches the hem of Jesus' garment, or the friends in Mark 2 who lower the paralytic. Their faith precedes the wondrous work. But in John's Gospel, faith is the intended result of his works, the signs that he does. And the other Gospels, they write about all kinds of reactions that people have. They're amazed, they're in awe, they're filled with fear or wonder. But in John, the focus is entirely on the response of faith. It's like this light switch. There is either faith or no faith, belief or unbelief. The signs, the works that Jesus does are meant to point to this richer, greater reality, meant to provoke the conviction that he is who he says he is. Notice again in verse 26, Jesus says to the crowd, you are looking for me not because you saw signs. They did see the signs. They saw the feeding of the 5,000. They are the 5,000. But they did not see what happened as a sign. They saw this remarkable display. They saw their physical needs met. They ate their fill. But they missed the fullness of all that Jesus is and all that he's doing. To see that, you need faith. I want to be careful here. God is not indifferent to physical reality. God is not unconcerned with our physical needs and problems. The whole thrust of the Gospel of John, Jesus' incarnation, becoming the Word made flesh, is that creation matters to God, mattered enough for Him to enter into it fully and completely. 
God cares about world hunger and cancer diagnoses and criminal justice reform, the physical needs of life. Your physical needs matter to God. But the point I want to make is that the fullness of what God is doing in Jesus is so much greater than simply meeting the physical needs that we have. And full transformation in our lives, in faith, by faith in Jesus, involves recognizing this, involves growing in the recognition of this reality, involves our imaginations expanding to comprehend the fullness of who Jesus is and all that he does, such that our physical reality might become alive as a sign, directing our attention to the deeper, greater realities of all that God has done for us in Jesus, such that our longings, our hunger, and our desires might become signals to us of our spiritual longings for something transcendent and eternal, and such that the provision for our needs becomes a reminder of all that God is doing, so that every meal we eat or every physical need we see met becomes a foretaste of that feast to come. The writer Alan Noble, in his book, Disruptive Witness, speaks of this double movement of gratitude that should mark out, he encourages Christians should have mark out their lives, their experience of the world around them. He suggests that whenever we encounter beauty or goodness in the world, we have that amazing meal or we see that remarkable vista, encounter that amazing work of art. There is the God-given enjoyment of the thing reveling in its beauty, its goodness, its truth. And then there is this second move of gratitude, of recognition that it is by God's hand that such things happen, that they are created and sustained. And even they become pointers, they become indicators, reminders of the ways the gospel is playing out in our lives, the truths that undergird us in all things. Through our reading today and the rest of John 6 in the coming weeks, we will see how Jesus guides this crowd from a merely physical understanding of what he's done to this more complete understanding. And as he does that, people get angry. They get frustrated. You'll see it. But this morning, I think, what comes through most clear is the insecurity, the desperate insecurity of the crowd. Tell us the work we must do. Give us a sign. Give us this bread. Even the, the linking to the, their ancestors feels like it, it has this insecure notion, right? Like our ancestors, they receive bread. We are qualified. We're okay. All of this suggests a certain hunger, a certain lack, a certain desperation. If our lives are oriented toward the physical, to what we can taste, touch, and see exclusively, our lives will be marked by a similar insecurity and desperation. Because such things are, as our reading from Isaiah reminds us this morning, finite. They will come to an end. They are incapable of providing the solidity, the security that we need, that we long after. To orient our lives fundamentally toward wealth creation, toward well-being or perpetual youthfulness, toward comfort and security, is to work for food that spoils. Because such things, good as they may be, are fleeting. Changes in circumstances will happen. 
The world today is grappling with the reality of climate change and all its uncertainty, all its ramifications. In the world, nations are rising and falling. Fortunes are being won and lost. Things that are in place today will not be there tomorrow. If your life is oriented entirely toward the physical, physical well-being and security, you will become a desperate and insecure person. Your physical needs matter to God. Your physical longings are part of who God made you to be. But such things, such needs and longings are best understood as pointers, as signs of a greater and more profound longing. A longing that when satisfied can transform the human existence. And that leads us to our second heading, eating right. This past year, some of you may have followed this in the news, there were remarkable protests, angry Many, many tens of thousands of people protesting in the country of France about a change in the retirement age from 62 to 64. At one point, there was over 10,000 tons of garbage on the streets of France because sanitation workers were protesting the change in their retirement age from 57 to 59. And as overworked Americans, overworked North Americans, we marveled at this. The retirement age was 62. Can you believe it? One of the most freeing things that Jesus proclaims here today is that there is only one work to be done. That out of the fullness and complexity of life, all these different competing values, potential options, the taskless as long as your arm, perpetually undone, out of all of that, one thing is essential. One thing is important and most clear. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There is such freedom for us work-sick people in those words. The nature, the limitation of physical bread, of course, is that it spoils, it goes bad. And so there's the need for ongoing work, work to harvest wheat, work to bake bread, to earn the money, to buy the bread again and again. The cycle repeats itself. There is no end to the toil. But Jesus offers his hearers, offers us something different, something better. The work is singular and results in complete security because the food he offers endures. It endures and satisfies. In, in verse 35, the words used to communicate the satisfaction. Those who taste of it will never go hungry, will never be thirsty. That phrase is the strongest possible negation in the Greek language. It is as strong as you can put it. It removes the possibility of it not being true. There's no potential scenario in which this is not the case, in which you will surely never hunger, in which you will surely, certainly never be thirsty. We Coelhos have had some rough moments in these early weeks of getting back to school. We had a difficult morning this week, stress, short tempers, snarky comments, things forgotten, barely on time. I suspect you know these kind of mornings. And we were all anxious, we were all frustrated. And I remember that morning, seeing a news report about how drought conditions in Austin have caused people to experience their foundations in their homes to shift. And I remember thinking, our house foundation is definitely moving. 
I have no evidence of this, but that was my headspace. Like everything that can go wrong will go wrong. I was anxious, I was insecure. With that headspace, with all that going on, Shannon and I did, as is our custom most mornings, prayer, morning prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. I'm not sharing that to like humble brag or show how holy we are. Most of the time, we engage in this in a half-begrudging, bleary-eyed, and bored kind of way. But this morning, as we prayed through the words, naming the goodness of God, recounting the saving acts and all that we've received in Jesus, I will testify to you that something happened to me. It wasn't particularly dramatic. It was simply this, the frustrations and uncertainties were put into context. It's not as though they do not matter. Our house foundation may very well be jacked up. But the truth of what Jesus has done is unshaken, is unmoved. It endures. And because of that, I can say my physical needs, the physical needs of my family are well in hand, held in hand by the one who is more than able to provide. And that truth on that frustrating, anxious morning brought me life. This truth brings us life. It's not that those who believe in Jesus never suffer deprivation. Christians do die of hunger and thirst, same as everyone else. Lord, have mercy. But for those who have taken Jesus at his word, who trust that the seal, God's seal of approval is upon him, there is this life-giving recognition that in life and in death, he holds us fast. That what he provides endures. So we can live satisfied lives, knowing our physical needs, our very selves, all things are held well in hand. That is the promise of verse 37, a little lower down. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. You can't hear it in our English translation, but that is the same emphatic negation that marked verse 35. Whoever comes to me, I will surely, certainly, most definitely never drive away. It is impossible. Are you here today weary of the fleeting promises of this world? Have you been flailing around to satisfy your heart in physical ways? Are you sick and tired of hoping after, working after things that cannot sustain you? That so often is the root of our sin, salving the hurt, seeking to feed the longing. If that is you, turn to him and find yourself held fast in his embrace. Satisfy yourself in the truth. Feed on the truth that he will not, cannot reject you. It is impossible that Jesus should not receive you and hold you fast. Jesus always does God's will. And it is not simply God's will that you should be received by Jesus, but it is God's will that Jesus should keep you, hold you, and bring you to the end beyond which there is no more danger, no more deprivation. That is the promises of God to us in Jesus Christ. That is the bread of life, the bread of God come down from heaven. And all of this is gift. That is why the work, the one thing required, is seemingly so out of proportion with all that is gained. 
Eight times in these 15 verses, the verb give is used. Six of those are spoken by Jesus to describe the context in which he is coming, to describe the context in which he does what he does. The Son of Man gives the food that endures to eternal life. The Father gives the true bread from heaven. He who is the bread of God, come down from heaven, gives life to the world. That which will most satisfy you is not earned, it is not wages, it is a gift, right? The wages of sin is death. You have to work for that. That way of life will work you to the bone. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life. It is an unconditioned gift. The work you have, the only task you have is to receive it, to lay hold of it, to receive him who is the bread of life, our gift. And to those who do this one work, who receive him, the Father gives, Jesus says, gives now, gives today, and into the future, eternal life. That is a different kind of life, life of a different order, the unspoiled, enduring life of God. That life which alone endures, that life which alone satisfies, the life that transforms and means in physical plenty and in physical lack, in physical deprivation, in life, in death, we can say, my needs are well in hand. I am secure. Whatever happens, I will be raised on the last day. Do you want to be satisfied and strengthened? Do you want to be freed to, like Jesus says here, make the Father's will your own? Then orient your life around not the meeting of your own physical and material needs, but around the reception of his good gift in Jesus. To do so is to receive eternal life, this qualitative, quantitatively different existence realized today as we receive Jesus as the bread of life, as we draw near in faith. And as we come forward in a few moments in faith, we proclaim in doing so, I can't believe it's not bread. No, it, he, the bread of life, is so much more. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.